Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. And hey, audience, for this episode, we just want to let you know up top that this is something that you may not want to listen to with children in the car or something like that. Or, you know, you may want to discern when and where you actually listen to the episode because the topic is controversial and a little touchy. That's right. Uh, If you remember back to 2015, we published an episode titled The Science of Necrophilia in which we set out to explain and demystify a taboo and disturbing practice. And I think we achieved that. Uh, in this episode, we're going to explore the topic of zoophilia with the same goals in mind. Now, that being said, again, we want to give listeners fair warning about the topic, even though we'll be tackling it with the same level of, of tact and decorum that we apply to other topics of this nature. Exactly. So if you just are a subscriber to our show and this is downloaded to your feed and it's just auto-playing or something like that, now is your opportunity to hit pause and wait until you're in a more comfortable situation or or skip to the next episode if you want to. Indeed. Uh So here we go. This is the Zoophilia episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. All right. Now that we have disclaimers out of the way, let's jump right into it. It was just a a clinical definition. What are we talking about when we talk about zoophilia? Okay, so zoophilia is typically defined as recurrent, intense sexual fantasies, urges, and sexual activities with non-human animals. Sometimes uh, viewers and listeners don't like it when we use the term non-human animals, but here I think it's especially appropriate. Yeah. Uh, there are defined variations about this based on species. There's a lot of variations on this. I didn't want to like really like rattle everybody's heads with all the various terminology, but suffice to say, uh, there's variations based on dogs, cats, horses, pigs, birds, dolphins, lizards, and insects. Now, the word zoophile is Greek for animal lover, but today, zoophilia is defined as a paraphilia. That means it's an unusual sexual activity that deviates from what is considered normal at a particular time in a particular society. And these are currently classified as psychological disorders that become basically the person's prime means of gratification. It displaces their sexual content with a consenting adult partner. This can include anything from fantasies to sexual urges to actual behaviors. But in 2014, a paper was written by Ranger and Federoff, and this was in the Journal of the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law, about definitions in regards to this. And I have to admit that until we sat down and and did the research for this episode, I was a little murky on the terminology myself. So zoophilia can be confusing, especially when you try to distinguish it from the term bestiality. It's worth reminding ourselves before we get too far into this, humans are not the only ones who risk misreading sexual interest in other species. There's a lot of evidence we've talked about on the show before, whether it's chimpanzees, dogs, or horses, okay? Yeah, I mean, one of the issues here, of course, is that, yeah, we we find plenty of examples of sexual violence in other species, as well as cases of interspecies sexual activity. But but humans are the only practitioners who truly possess rationality and consciousness in a in the human sense. Right. Naturally, we've discussed in past episodes, you know, to what degree do other animals have consciousness? To what degree are other animals aware? And, you know, you can go back and forth and there's some tremendous uh, research that's been done in those areas. But 
even in cases where there is arguably consciousness, it is a different consciousness. You know, we, we there are just separate mind states at work here. And on top of that, we're the only species that has ethics and laws in a very, uh, you know, written down and culturally enforced manner. And we're the only ones to whom consent has a human meaning. Right. And this is super important to the topic, but we're actually going to diverge here and we're going to sort of split the topic so that we can cover this concisely today. So let's begin by using this distinction going forward for the rest of the episode. We're going to refer to zoophilia as a psychological condition. And a psychological condition, uh, as we'll discuss, that does not necessarily involve contact with the animals. Exactly. Whereas bestiality is a legal term that is used to describe the act of. Okay. Now, if you look at the diagnostic uh, and statistical manual of mental disorders, probably our favorite book on the show to cite, uh, it includes zoophilia. It's been in there since the third edition. The current edition defines it as, quote, recurrent and intense sexual arousal involving animals. But it doesn't differentiate between the sex, age, or type of animals, and it doesn't specify what sex acts, if any, actually occur with an animal, and what circumstances may be, and what the purpose may be of the, the zoophilia. So Ranger and Fedorov, again, I turn back to their paper, they make a really good point in that when you compare all of the studies of which we found out there is a lot of research yeah. into this, like so much, uh, way more than there was when we did our necrophilia episode, uh, it turns out that because none of those distinctions are made in the DSM, they aren't really made in a lot of the papers either. So the the terminology that's used to compare and contrast this psychological condition as it's defined is very loose. And subsequently, they find it to be somewhat meaningless, essentially, that like we need to come up with a a, a better terminology or a better categorization. Right. And, and that's something we'll get into as well. Somebody has done that. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things to come out of the research here is that there is a, there is a lot of a lot has been written about zoophilia, and yet there are an, so many questions that still remain. There's still a, there's still so much uh, room for additional research. Yeah, and so most of the studies we looked at they concentrate on the act of bestiality, and we decided okay, ground rules for this episode. First of all, we're going to try to just stay away from just like sensationalized stories about acts of bestiality. Right, mm -hmm. we're going to focus on the zoophilic preference for a human to be attracted to another animal. Also, there is so much conversation about legal uh, issues surrounding zoophilia that there's no way we could have possibly put it all into this episode as well. It would have to be an entire other episode. So we're leaving out legal and ethical questions out of our notes for today's episode. Uh, we'll, we'll probably circle back around and ask some of those questions again at the end of the episode. And certainly we want to hear from you, the audience, what comes up for you. In fact, in our discussion module on Facebook, we've already been talking about this and some interesting points about legal and ethical issues have already been brought up. That's right. Yeah, we've reached out just to see what kind of initial questions and initial levels of understanding uh, of this topic might be there. And, and I think that's ultimately what this episode is about, an, an, an attempt to understand zoophilia to the extent that most of us can. Yeah. All right. So now that we've got like a setup and a framework for the episode, let's let's do this. Let's get into this because there's <laughs> a lot of interesting information here. Let's start with the history and myth 
underpinning zoophilia. So there is a long tradition of it being in mythology, and it usually chooses animals that have characteristics that symbolize what our human ideals are, right? And if you look, there's prehistoric depictions of zoophilia that have been found in Siberia, Italy, France, and Sweden. Allegedly also, the ancient Greeks, Egyptians, Hebrews, and Romans took part in similar activities as well, okay? There's also evidence that during the Middle Ages, zoophilia was a tolerated practice, and this was up until the 16th century. It became religiously and culturally shamed because of a prohibition against all non-reproductive sexual activities. So this is important. When we were talking about the definition of it earlier regarding, quote, deviancy, right, that it entails the rest of society agreeing upon what deviancy is. And apparently at this point it was not. Uh, so today, of course, there is a taboo surrounding it because not just of, you know, uh, religious reasons of non-reproductive sexual activities, but also because society has a moral concern about cruelty to animals. Yeah, and that's that's definitely something we're going to come back to again and again here. Now, when we mention mythology and zoophilia, I imagine a few examples come to everyone's mind, uh, particularly as far as Western traditions are concerned. So the Greek god Zeus, for instance, took the form of a bull, a swan, an eagle to seduce or kidnap or in in one case copulate with a mortal woman. I totally remember reading that as a kid, like reading about Greek myths and being like, wait a minute. (laughs) Like there was like some – it was like there was there was something missing from the narrative (laughs) explaining how that whole thing worked. Yeah, I, I definitely remember reading the myths as well and having uh, have some, having some questions about what was really going on here. Um, and, and certainly, the, you know, this is an odd case in and of itself, just to consider a a humanoid uh, entity right. such as Zeus taking the form of an animal uh, and then engaging in the sex act with a human. We again, we have we have an inhuman agent, but one that's essentially humanoid in nature and in original form, and it takes the form of a beast to pursue, and only in some tellings engage sexually with a human female. This is how you can tell that it's taboo in our society now, right? Like, imagine, tr- just try to imagine. Thor Ragnarok. I just went and saw that this weekend. It is about similar mythologies, right? It's a different culture's mythology. But there would never in a million years be a movie where Odin turns into a bull and goes to Earth and has sex with a human woman. True. (laughs) That would probably not get past the the censors. Now, in other myths – it's important to note we have many varieties of this tale. So in some cases, yes, humans or humanoid entities take a page from the Zeus playbook and they masquerade as an animal. And then sometimes that masquerade results in, in sex. But we also have the reversal in which an animal masquerades as a human. And in these cases, certainly the sex isn't physically 100% human, but it kind of presents 50% of the zoophilic uh, essence. Uh, I read read an article for this titled The Mythology of Masquerading Animals or Bestiality by Wendy Doniger, uh, who published uh, in the journal Social Research, and this was in 1995. And she makes some, some I think, very interesting points that, that kind of help illuminate, again, the mythic underpinnings of, of what we're talking about here today. Okay. So she says that animals, first of all, often stand in as surrogates in our myths, surrogate parents for a royal child, for example, a surrogate victim 
for a child taken into the woods to be murdered. Uh, we all remember some of the tellings of um, Snow White, uh, correct, with the uh, the uh, t- taking uh, the, the child into the woods to uh, murder and bringing back an animal's heart instead. Right, yeah. So this gets back to the idea of the animal being a symbol for human ethics, human culture, human beliefs. Exactly. Now, there there are two complementary animal paradigms here, she says. Lowly animals standing in for low social classes uh, and regal or high animals standing in for higher human classes or even the gods. Okay. And she points out that some argue that Christianity itself borrows from the Greek uh, tale of Zeus taking the form of a swan to impregnate uh, Leda. Uh, the argument here is that instead we get Mary and the symbol of the dove as a sort of mythological reverberation of the Greek myth. In either case, we see humans marrying above or beneath their stature. Interesting. Okay, I had not thought of it that way, but yeah, that definitely makes sense. Yeah, and in this, the, the whole stature question is going to come back again and again because I think so much in the zoophilia uh, conundrum has to do with what is the level of the human and what is the level of the animal. That like, So this idea is interesting because I think it somewhat ties into present-day language as well. Class is something that's very difficult to discuss. Mm-hmm. Even today, like, we have a hard time talking about it in, I guess, public company, right? Right. Uh, so it seems like in order to get around that, these myths used animals as, like, a substitute for class affiliations. Yeah, indeed. Now, she argues that even non-religious stories with human and animal sexual interaction have theological ramifications. And I found this very interesting. She She points to the trope of feet betraying the status of an entity. So uh, we've covered before. One of my favorite topics is uh, succubi and incubi. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and and there are stories about how you can identify a succubus because her feet will give her away. Really? Yeah. So she may look like a beautiful woman, but if you look at her feet, they're like duck feet. Because uh, I believe in the the witchcraft treaties that I was reading about this, the argument is that that God would never present uh, you know a completely um, uh, unbeatable challenge. That there'd be gotcha. that for the faithful. If you're faithful enough to doubt it and then look at the feet, then yeah. there's a way out. And somehow over the years, that's turned more into like goat hooves instead of duck feet. Yeah, there's been more a more monstrous version of the feet. But I see it come up a ton, a time and time again. Uh, uh, it, it even came up recently on the Netflix series uh, Big Mouth. I don't know if you're watching. No. That. Uh, a risque uh, comedy about okay. uh, puberty. Uh, but there's a demon that shows up and it, its nature is given away by its feet. Okay. Uh, so, um, but this is not only the case with lesser beings, but even uh, higher beings. She uh, points to uh, the case in Hinduism where the feet of mortals touch the ground while higher beings float, quote, like a hovercraft. Okay. <laughs> and then there, there are additional examples. You have the idea of feet of clay, the bruised heel of Eve, uh, Christ as, quote, the hunted stag whose foot is stained with blood. You have Achilles and his heel as well, uh, which uh, she also points out that he was the son of a goddess with equine qualities and was raised by uh, a centaur. So uh, you, you get into this uh, this area where, where you have to ask, why why the feet? What is it about the, the feet that... Uh, that gives us some clue to the stature of uh, of an animal or a, or a being. Probably because they're incredibly vulnerable too, right? Like mm-hmm. like in terms of human anatomy, I think of feet as being, in, you know, especially before we built like steel-toed boots. Yeah, they're incredibly vulnerable pieces of anatomy. Well, yeah, I think that's a that's a huge part of it because to to wear shoes is is 
an act of a sort of a you know a higher state of humanity i guess i mean we, we we have more conflicted feelings about that today obviously an idea of like walking barefoot through the park has a certain of appeal now that it might not have had previously sure um but it is a way to pick up parasites or get something stuck in your foot yeah uh and and uh, likewise we get into this area uh, where we consider the legs of an organism how many legs does it have and this is often used to determine status and we see that in leviticus we see that with aristotle uh and the argument here is that a lot of this derives from the fact that hands define humans and therefore if you lack a pair of uh of feet that means that you probably have hands. Uh, and also our ancestors were trackers. They were hunters. This is how we identified other forms of life, tracking their movements. And this is the strategy we turn to when a strange creature must be identified. Uh, it, I mean, there's also the Sphinx, four feet, two feet, three feet. Oh, uh, yeah. The riddle of the Sphinx, you know, the uh, a being that is uh, that has a different number of legs in the morning and uh, the afternoon and the evening. And the argument here is that tales of transformation – Animals turning into people, people turning into animals. It comes down to the same thing. She says, stories about animal lovers present two variants of a single truth. A human being is really an animal. But the weight of reality is placed differently in different variants. So that when the story ends and the masquerade is over, either there is a human or there is an animal. It does matter. Generally speaking, the forms are distributed as in uh, as in the motif, marriage to beast by day, man by night. And of course, the opposite is uh, uh, is true in some cases where uh, the entity is a man by day and a beast by night. But it's going to be one of these two. And you and I were talking about this before we went into the studio, too. This is sort of both the constant struggle, but also the desire sometimes to give in to the feral animal nature of humanity. Right. And there's yeah. so many examples in the episodes we've done of various cultures trying to attain that state. Yeah, without any kind of a zoophilic or or sexual connotation as well. Like animal transformations um, it's it's you know it goes back into prehistory. Right. So Doniger uh, argues, quote, the key seems to be that the true form is the one that appears at night. An interesting assertion of the primacy of what is hidden, the time of dreaming over what is apparent, the time of the workaday world. So you're probably wondering, well, what are these myths saying? Well, she argues that on one hand, ancient peoples live closely with animals. So their forms and their behaviors were natural metaphors for human sexuality. And they also may have employed unconscious symbolism in identifying the animal aspects of themselves. But we're also talking about sexual trickery here, both both uh, with mythic animals and mythic humanoids. Uh, but this is this is really quite in keeping with not only human sexuality but the reproductive strategies of, of countless species. So, to what extent are we just you know using these animals as metaphors to understand it all? And she also points out that animals sometimes mistake us for their mates, uh, often through the process of imprinting. Mm-hmm. Uh, she brings it all to it to a head, I think, with this this final quote here. She says, animals, too, have their sexual illusions. Thus, they provide us with both basic data and basic metaphors with which to formulate our own sexual masquerades. For we, too, are subject to the magic of imprinting when, like those mockingbirds, we use animals as mirrors in the construction of our own self-deceptive self-images. So this actually brings up something for me that is going to come up in the research later, but I want to just t- put a pin on it here, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Kinsey did some research into this, and we'll talk about that data later, but it ties in very closely with what she's saying about 
early humans living closely with animals, yeah. right? And Kinsey's research touched upon that, that uh, in fact, according to his research, and it's been since been disputed, that rural farm communities are more likely to have instances of zoophilia than like urban ones where there's less animals. Yeah. Now, I, I, I will say this. I, I think that one of the take homes from all this is that we can't l- just look at myths and religious treatments uh, as m- mere literal invocations of bestiality. Like we can't say, well, Zeus turned into a swan and copulated with a woman. Therefore, this is proof positive that that bestiality and zoophilia were were, were common and accepted. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like there's a there's a lot of truth in her statement uh, about quote we about us using animals as mirrors because I think I think it not only explains a lot about what's going on in mythic zoophilia, but it might just tie into some of the pathological aspects of the topic that we're discussing here. Yeah, yeah, I tend to agree. I. I think my position on this after looking at all the research is somewhere around that we as human beings are not very good at understanding feelings of strong emotion mm-hmm. and and like we sometimes confuse those. But also there's lots of evidence too that this there's no confusion going on here, right? As we're going to discuss. So, yeah, I don't know. Let's keep going. This is a this is a a weird one for us. It's hard to come down on any particular side on this, but Well, on, I mean, outside of saying <laughs> outside of the law. Right. Right. Um I'd say it's hard to come down on a position that that clearly explains what's exactly. going on. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. what I meant. So, why don't we take a break? We'll uh, visit a sponsor, and then when we come back, we're going to get into who exactly zoophiles are. All right, we're back. So, yeah, it's one thing to talk about ancient peoples and uh, mythological tales, but let's get into the in, into understanding exactly who zoophiles are. Right. So, as I mentioned earlier, and actually, I see this now in your note that you made the same uh, made the same comment that I just made earlier in the 1950s. Dr. Alfred Kinsey, everybody remembers that movie with Liam Neeson, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, published the Kinsey Reports on the American Sexual Practice. And in that report, it claimed that 8% of males and 4% of females had had at least one sexual experience with an animal. There was also a higher prevalence for these acts for people who worked on farms. There's, According to that research, it was up to 17% male. Now, Kinsey had a book that came out in 1948, and this was with Wardell Pomeroy and Clyde Martin. It's called The Sexual Behavior in the Human Male. That also reported that 50% of the population of male Americans who lived on rural farms claimed to have sexual contact with other species. Subsequently, Kinsey advised clinicians to assure such men if they came to them and, and, you know, they were having some kind of a crisis about this, that this was a normal part of being raised in a rural environment. And the reasons why were, one, that females were scarce, and two, that premarital relations were strictly forbidden. This is somewhat unfortunate as we find the sort of the history of studying zoophilia move forward to present day because it caused most people to assume that zoophiles were male, woman-deprived, rural, and poorly educated. So it, it going back to our discussion of class, I mean, it turns into a purely class issue. Like this yep. is a, a working class, lower class conundrum. This is what 
essentially this is what poor, uneducated people do. Yeah, and in fact, in some of the later research that we'll talk about in here, you'll find that one of the first qualifiers that's added to any of the anonymous case studies is, just so you know, this person has like a real job. Like this mm-hmm. person's a doctor or this person's a lawyer or, you know, they they, they feel the need to qualify it somehow like that. Now – Along with zoophilia, psychologist John Money has studied paraphilia extensively, and he claims to have identified about 40 variant behaviors of paraphilia. Money was actually world-renowned in the 1970s, and he claimed that zoophilic behavior was actually transitory when there were no other sexual outlets available to people. Uh, In a 1982 study that found that males ranked, quote, sexual expressiveness as the highest motivating factor for their zoophilia and emotional involvement as the lowest, it subsequently was reversed where female zoophiles reported that emotional involvement was their highest motivating factor and sexual expressiveness was their lowest motivating factor. So, okay, we're already beginning to see why there needs to be a categorization difference both between the, the gender of the humans involved but also the, the gender of the animals involved, mm-hmm. right? Then in the 2000s, further research found – all of that stuff to be false. Uh, while there are case reports of individuals who seek treatment for this as an unusual sexual preference, many like-minded people are coming together on the internet in forums that are dedicated to zoophile communities. This is something that came up in our uh, discussion module. People were mentioning like there, there's certain areas of Reddit, I guess, or like um, they had mentioned particular websites that you can go to if like this is your interest, right? Uh, right. And I and I think I want to – if anyone out there is, is already like, oh, I, I don't know if I can keep going with this. Well, right. Well, bear in mind, we're going to talk about some of the classifications for zoophiles. And again, most of these classifications do not involve contact with the animal, I believe, or at least several of them do not. Yeah, yeah. And – I think that's an important like thing for trying to understand this better too. Mm-hmm. And I saw this – this is probably important to mention that like in the literature, there is a lot of comparison to how this is studied with how pedophilia is studied. And we've actually had people write into us and say, oh, can you guys do an episode on the paraphilia of pedophilia? And we we have not done that yet. We, we did get into it a little bit on the – the robot um, sex bot uh, Gosh, episode. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah, and one of the take homes in that, as I recall, was that a, a great deal of the research into pedophilia was based on studies of criminals, and right. there was this theory that was put forth that, well, what if there are two types of individuals with these inclinations: those who act upon them and those who have them under control. And it, it seems that you could make a similar argument for uh, for other uh, uh, paraphilias as well. Yeah, this is especially interesting to me. That That's a similar thing that happened in zoophilia studies at the beginning. But it's especially interesting to me because I just binged Mindhunter on Netflix. Oh, yeah. Which is um, obvious. I did. You, yeah. you have as well. Mm-hmm. And so it's about, if you haven't seen it, it's about the early days of the FBI learning how to psychologically profile serial killers. Mm-hmm. And... There's a lot of similarities in how they studied for that and the problems with their methodology that come into these other psychological profiles for what are defined as criminal acts, right? Okay. 
So it should also be noted that most of the published studies on zoophilia use non-clinical samples for their data. That means like a lot of it is anonymous data or it's just, you know, people that they're, they're, they're finding, for instance, on these internet sites, the claims that they're making. The studies find that the majority of self-identified zoophiles actually don't have sex with animals because there's no other sexual outlet, but because it is actually their sexual preference. So then you get into a complicated thing there, right, where it's it's the same thing as saying, well, if heterosexuality is your sexual preference, then why isn't that uh, defined as a as a deviant disorder, right? And once again, it comes down to society and ethics and culture. Uh, now, reasons here include A, attraction to animals out of desire and affection, but also B, sexual attraction that's based on love for animals. Now, this is a really crucial study in zoophilia research came out in 2002. It's Dr. Hani Maletsky. And uh, they surveyed 93 zoophiles for more information. She found the following statistics. Only 12% of her sample engaged in sex with animals because there were no human partners available. Okay, so that seems to automatically disqualify that that idea that Kinsey presented us yeah, with. Yeah, the, the idea of, say, a rural individual who has, does not have contact with human females and then therefore turns to animals. Yeah, exactly. said the reason why was because they were too shy to have sex with humans. So again, that is a a very low percentage comparatively to sort of, I think, the stereotypical understanding. This number is going to blow you away. A hundred percent of the women said it was because they were sexually attracted to animals. So all of the women that she interviewed said that. 67% of the women said that it was because of their love and affection for the animals. 67% of the women also said it was because the animal itself wanted to have sex with them. Now, Maletsky's Hmm. sample trended towards dogs and horses. And this is something I think we were finding throughout the literature, right? That, that seem, those seem to be the most common species. Yeah. Uh, dolphins come up occasionally as well, but let's be honest, how many of us have like ready access to dolphins? Yeah. One of the things we see time and time again is that it, it tends to concern domesticated animals and and you, and you have to realize that like domesticated animals are in and of themselves a, a rather perverse thing you know i mean it's a very human thing it's what we've been doing for ages it's a, it's a part of human civilization but we subjugated animals and transformed them and and use them as tools we use yeah. them uh, as as you know beasts of labor we use them uh, as a as a as a ready food source we use them to fulfill our desires and and that is occasionally brought up as an argument in favor of zoophilia saying well look this is how we use animals uh, elsewhere in our world why not for this area as well yeah you know uh, as many of the listeners know i'm an animal person i've got two dogs and two cats and uh it, I think about this a lot, right? That mm-hmm. like the sort of the negotiation, the deal between us is like they get to live in comfortable domesticity mm-hmm. where they're fed and sheltered and everything. But the subsequent expectation is that they need to follow the human rules of being, right? And yeah. with my my female pit bull dog that I recently acquired in the last two years, she is – uh, what's referred to as a reactive dog. She's very difficult in terms of how she relates to other dogs and like territorial, right? Uh, and so that's been a challenge for us. We've had to do a lot of training with her. But there's a part of me inside that's like, 
why am I uh, forcing her to try to behave in a way that isn't natural for her? Oh yeah, we we run into that all the time with our with our cat Mochi because Mochi is an indoor cat. She's our first purely indoor cat, and so she has all of these natural inclinations to to hunt mainly right. that are not met by her indoor life and so she has to take those impulses out usually on my feet <laughs> while I'm trying to walk around uh, the house she'll attack me and I feel like I can only get so mad about that because yeah. on on one hand yes I my feet should not be hunted for sport but on the other hand we're the ones who took a, a wild creature or you know by we I mean humans we took this wild creature and decided it should live inside of a of an artificial environment Right. And so then you get to this point with zoophilia and it's that is an extreme line to draw that is like, well, as part of the negotiation of domesticity, we have sexual relationships. Yeah. Um, so I think that is why a lot of people, ourselves included, have a, a really difficult time talking about this. But, hey, the show's called Stuff to Blow Your Mind. <laughs> I, I think we felt like we had to tackle this. Uh, but also do it in, you know, a mature conversational way. Yeah. I mean, to, to channel the, the words of, um, of uh, Timothy Leary, you know, we're putting ourselves in that uh, state of vulnerable open mindedness and, uh, it, it's, it can be a very uncomfortable state of open mindedness. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. As long as we all know that we're all uncomfortable together, yes. I think we're, yeah. we're good. Uh, two more quotes from a Hani Malitsky study. And these, these are related. I actually, only 8% of the males that she interviewed wanted to stop their zoophilic behavior. None of the females that she interviewed did. So mm-hmm. again, so 100% of them said they were, uh, 100% of the females she interviewed said they were sexually attracted to animals and none of them said they wanted to stop their behavior. 71% of all, uh, of her subjects considered themselves to be totally well adjusted in their current lives. So the idea of it, of the paraphilia being a mental disorder was sort of uh, anathema to them. Huh. Now I uh, we don't have the data here for this, but I wonder how that matches up with like just the the, the public in general. Like, yeah. What percent of just humans can sit, think that they have a, you know, a well-adjusted life? Man, that is a really good question and I bet it's changed with our generation. Yeah. I mean, since obviously, you know, uh, Mad Men was basically about this since like the 50s, the idea of psychological dysfunction in American society has become more and more prevalent. But I feel like our generation is the first one that's really kind of comfortable just sitting in it and saying like, oh, yeah, we're screwed up. Yeah. And then, you know, to what extent are you more likely to express uh, contentment with your life if there is this um, this uh, this abnormal aspect to it, you know? Yeah. It's kind of like if you're, if you're willing to go down this particular abnormal road far enough, then of course you're going to be okay with it. You're going to wrap it into your understanding of your personal reality. I don't know. That's, that's mm. kind of a, an open question. I can that's think of true. arguments on either side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I, I mean, I guess you can see that in just like behaviors that aren't considered deviant, but are just like not necessarily popular. Yeah. Right. Um, so there's other studies that seem to indicate that zoophiles are not suffering from significant distress or impairment as a result of their behavior. Malitsky's study said that most subjects reported being happy and that they were not interested in altering their behavior. Then in 2002, Christopher Earls and Martin 
Lamier published a study on a 54-year-old convict. So again, we're getting into this where you're, you're talking with uh, people who are already imprisoned. But this was a person who had strong sexual interest in horses. They hooked this person up to a penile plesmograph. And they showed him nude pictures of a variety of humans in various ages. And then they also showed him slides of cats, dogs, sheep, chickens, and cows. It was only when they showed him images of horses that he responded physically. This seems to suggest that zoophilia, while extraordinarily rare, may be a sexual orientation instead of a disorder. But this is, this is, I think, like the huge question surrounding all the research on this, right? Is yeah. like, how do you define that? And then uh, how do you, what, how do you provide evidence for that? Yeah. Um, yeah. I have to, have to say this was definitely a stumbling point for me with this topic, like trying to, to think about how zoophilia works as an orientation. For instance, how would it be supported by natural selection? For instance, if you take homosexual behavior, there, there are numerous evolutionary mechanisms possibly involved there. Uh, but I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing what, what those mechanisms might be for zoophilia. I mean, it might be as simple as there just being no, uh, uh, adaptive benefits whatsoever. Uh, and again, I wonder if it, if you could chalk it up to being just a complication of domestication in general, uh, which again is itself a fairly unnatural act from a biological perspective. See, I think that is a real interesting approach, and I didn't see that in any of the literature so far, but maybe mm-hmm. it's out there. But you're right. I think the idea of domestication in general and like the things that go along with it may be so unnatural in and of themselves that they promote this behavior. Yeah. So Earls and Lalumier, sorry, I'm butchering that name. I know I am. They revisited the topic again in 2009. uh, And then this was published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior. It's another case study. This time it was about a 47-year-old man who was attracted to horses. He described his attempts with women as, quote, foreign, distasteful, repulsive, mechanical, forced, and unsuccessful. Now, this is the guy I was talking about earlier. He obtained a medical degree. He married a human woman, and they had two children. But their sex life relied on him imagining her to be a horse. So obviously their marriage didn't last. Hmm. So this is an interesting study in the sense that, okay, like, again, it seems to revisit the idea of orientation versus disorder, but then also – the way that they slip in the differences between these two guys' statuses, like one of them's a prisoner and the other one is a doctor who's anonymously living happily and has a family. Well, not happily, apparently. So we see we see both the sort of the uh, the example that would have been expected by by the earlier mod, mod, models. We had a, a lower class, in, in fact, incarcerated individual with criminal tendencies to engage in this, but then also a successful higher class individual yeah. who had who was very wrapped up in in this uh, way of thinking as well. So then along comes a familiar figure. This is a guy that we first met, at least I did, in our necrophilia episode. Apparently his thing is taking paraphilias and really trying to categorize them. This is Dr. Anil Agrawal. And in 2011, he published a comprehensive typology of zoophilia in the Journal of Forensic and Legal Medicine. And yep, same guy. He did the 2009 study on necrophiles that we've previously covered. In fact, we have an entire gallery on StuffToBlowYourMind.com <laughs> based on his previous research of necrophiles. And I think in both cases, this is super useful because it 
it, it basically breaks uh, this behavior, this abnormal behavior, down to a spectrum. Yeah. And in doing that, you can you can see the different the different levels of of sort of commitment or interaction with it, and uh, and 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 you you are presented with examples that in some cases are are more sympathetic, like they're easier for you to wrap your head around and say, okay, well, I could I could see how someone could could think like this, and potentially act like this, even if this other place on the spectrum is just very difficult to wrap my mind around. Yeah, and we're going to go through his uh, taxonomy, I guess you would call it. Um, I think that you out there may, you know, listen to it and go, well, wait a minute, that doesn't exactly fit everything that I am imagining here. And, and both of us, I think, as we were, you know, going through it, we're like, well, this could be refined a little bit. But he, he is literally the only person other than, the D, other than the DSM to provide any kind of classification. So it seems like there should be more work done here. All right. Well, let's take one more break. And when we come back, we will jump into these classifications. All right. We're back. So Agrawal, as we mentioned, his claims for his classification system on zoophilia are based on scientific and clinical literature along with his own theoretical speculation. So let's get into it. Like he did with necrophilia, there are 10 classifications. We're going to take some pauses along the way because some of them, I think, have a little bit more relevance to our discussion here than others. So here we go. The first one is human-animal role players. These are people who have never had sex with animals, but they are sexually aroused through wanting to have sex with humans who pretend to be animals. Um, the obvious indication here, and maybe some of you aren't familiar with this subculture, seems to include furry fandom. But here's what's interesting. A study was done on furries, uh, by a guy named David J. Rust, and he found that only 2% of furries were zoophiles. Now, furries, for anyone who's not familiar, the, the, you can look up pictures of furries fairly safely. Yeah. Uh, and these are just, a lot of times they're just people in, in, interacting with each other in big furry fake animal costumes. You know, it's it's like like sports mascots in a sense. And they right. have conventions. So they have a convention uh, here in Atlanta every year. I they do. In fact, I have a uh, an interesting story about that convention. So uh, my previous employer, we were doing a job search and we were flying candidates in to interview for the job search. And we mm-hmm. had set them up at the local Marriott here in town for the, to spend the night. And then they would come in the next morning. They'd do their job presentation and then go back home. Right. <laughs> It was, turned out to be the same day that the furry convention oh. was in town and the Marriott was where the furry convention was held. So this candidate was like, not traumatized, but like, kind of like, whoa, what Perplexed. is going on? <laughs> like, why were there all these people dressed up like stuffed animals? Now you have a more, I think, clinical explanation of what a furry is in the notes here. Yeah. Uh, so a furry is, quote, someone who has an interest in fictional anthropomorphic animal characters that have human characteristics and personalities and or mythological, that goes back to what we talked about at the mm-hmm. beginning, or imaginary creatures that possess human and or superhuman capabilities. Some furries are not sexually motivated at all. Right. But but some definitely are. Um, interesting uh, fact. Uh, I have many times over the, the past several years uh, turned to DeviantArt, yeah. uh, the, the website, which is not all – 
deviant. I don't really know no, enough about the, the history of the website, but there are a lot. It's where artists put up their work. Yeah, totally. And I find it, it's a great place to get in touch with an artist, uh, find a particular image and say, hey, we'd love to use this image on our episode. Yeah, there's a lot of really cool art on there. It's, I guess, like the best way to describe deviant art, if you're not familiar with it, is it's like the Facebook for artists. Yeah. Like, like it's like a social media platform that lets you share and network. And you see a, you see a great deal of variety. I mean, there, there are professional artists that have deviant art pages and there are, you know, very amateur pages. And then you have I have a DeviantArt account just so I can contact people, right. even though I do not create uh, visual art myself. That, but, it, but anyway, it ties into Zoophilia and uh, more importantly, I think, into furry culture because you do see a, a, a lot of furry-related uh, um, art on that website. And some of it's very innocent and some of it is, is more uh, R-rated. Yeah. I have to be honest that like of all of the sort of subcultural fandoms, I have the hardest time understanding furry culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think most listeners of the show know, like I really try to be open minded about m- most things and flexible in my beliefs, but that's one that's been tough for me to wrap my head around. And the very first time I encountered it was actually, um, a story about the work environment. And it was uh, back when I was doing graphic design, another graphic designer I knew worked at this company where her coworker uh, was apparently spending all of his time in Adobe Illustrator drawing uh, anthropomorphic donkeys and like horse people mm-hmm. having sexual relations with cat people. Huh. And it was super confusing for them at the time. I don't even think people defined furry as like a, as, as a subculture at that right. point. This is like very early 2000s. And that was my first experience with it. And I was just like, I, this person's artwork is amazing. Like they were, they were very good at what they did, but I just couldn't quite wrap my head around it. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the, the important thing to drive home about, about furries especially is that it is, it, it, it's something that takes place between adults, adult yeah. humans, adult consenting humans, and it may not have a sexual dimension to it at all. Uh, and, and then, likewise, outside of furries, there are there are other areas of uh, of animal role play that that have uh, you know er- erotic uh, dimensions to them. Sure, that don't involve furry costumes. Uh, people pre- pretending to be ponies, people pretending to be dogs. Uh, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's cats. Look, let's be honest. Like, uh, there's plenty, there's plenty of people out there who like fell in love with Mr. Mistopheles or whatever, right? Oh, or, or uh, I think for a lot of us, we grew up with superhero films. We watched what Batman? What was the second Batman? Uh, the one that had the the Catwoman with the stitches. Oh, Batman Returns. Yeah. Yes, we saw Batman Returns, and how are you supposed to feel about sure. this? Uh, this this sex figure, this uh, sex icon pre- presented uh, to you dressed and kind of behaving like a cat. Totally. Fun fact that I just learned. Apparently, when they shot that film, Michelle Pfeiffer really put a live bird in her mouth. What? Yeah. Huh. Crazy. Yeah. That's, that's a fun aside to kind of <laughs> shake things up here. Okay. But uh, before we move off of animal role play, I do yeah. want to drive home again, too, that there is an entire realm of animal role play that is non-sexual and is as old as human culture. Like Just the idea of engaging in a ritual where you become an animal or you summon uh, animistic forces. Sure. I mean, you find that in, in, in cultures around the world throughout history. So I, I feel like this is a great starting place for understanding 
these inclinations because I feel like this is this is the realm that is that is closest to uh you know, I guess the quote unquote normal perspective. Yeah. And I think what you said earlier too about consent is what's really important with mm-hmm. this particular identification too, right? Is that, you know, whether or not like I can wrap my head around it, I'm perfectly fine with two consenting adults dressing up in these costumes and doing whatever they want to do because, hey, that's their life, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff that humans do that honestly, I would rather watch it, uh, take place with animal costumes. Like, what if we could have all of our political debates take place that, that would way? Be, yeah, I would enjoy. You know what? We just voted here yesterday <laughs> in the state of Georgia. It would have been a lot nicer if people were wearing uh, uh, animal outfits. Yeah. Okay. Let, we we spent a lot of time on that first <laughs> definition. Let's get to the second one. You want to take that? Sure. Uh, this would be the romantic uh, zoophiles, those who uh, who keep animals as pets as a way to get psychosexually stimulated without actually having any kind of sexual contact with them. This is what this is an area that seems to me to fall under that area of like like impulse, but no action, like someone who yeah. is who is able to to keep impulses under control, which would otherwise shoot them into another category here. Then the third category is zoophilic fantasizers. These are people who fantasize about having sexual intercourse with animals, but never actually do so. Okay, so this is this is even more so. So, in a way, number two, the romantic zoophiles. I get a sense that this is this might be something that's almost subconscious. Maybe, you yeah. know, but mm-hmm. uh, but with number three, with zoophilic fantasizers, the fantasy is more overt. Yeah, I think so, yeah. And then number four, we have tactile zoophiles, those who get sexual excitement from touching, stroking, or fondling the animals or their genitals, but do not actually have sexual intercourse with animals. Okay. The the best thing I can come up with this, this is a scene from a bad movie. This is the only thing that comes to mind with this. Uh, Both Manhunter and Red Dragon, Mm -hmm. there's the scene where the um the blind woman is led by Francis Dollarhide to like a zoo or something like that and they have a tiger under anesthesia and she starts stroking the tiger and it's in this weird kind of sexual way that huh. is implied to be sexual towards Dollarhide that's like the closest thing i am coming to with any kind of sort of uh, example huh. of this yeah i only vaguely remember that scene from the movie maybe i just kind of you might have Lost blacked it out, that. honestly. Yeah. Uh, they did it again in, in the Hannibal TV show, too, as well, huh. actually. Okay. Uh, number five are fetishistic zoophiles, those who keep various animal parts, especially fur, that are used as erotic stimuli as a crucial part of their sexual activity. Now, this is essentially fur fetishism, though, right? I mean, it's, and that's not that different from leather fetishism and in, in, and in, and then therefore is not really that far, I think, out of the, uh, uh, the understanding of most, uh, most humans. I, I guess, um, the terminology various animal parts makes me think though, even though he says especially fur that you've also got like, I don't know, feet and stuff like that in a freezer or something. Well, um, this is another area where it comes down to like, my use of uh, of image databases, yeah. so I use Getty Images a lot for for work finding images for our our podcast episodes and and other bits of uh, content. 
and you run across a lot of uh, like artsy shots of, uh, of of men and women. And of course, yeah, you see people with fur, you see people with yeah. leather. You also see quite a few images of people posing with antlers, especially women posing with antlers. So, huh. like that would count. That's okay. uh, that's definitely part of a, an animal's body. Yeah. Uh, you know, a detachable part, but Okay. All right, what's the next one? All right, this is where we get into darker territory for sure. This is a sadistic uh, bestials. Those who derive sexual arousal from torturing animals. They're also, this is known as a uh, zoo sadism, uh, but it, is, it does not involve sexual intercourse with the animals. Right. And there's a lot of distinction in the literature. Again, with the terminology, zoo sadism is brought up a lot by self-professed zoo sexuals or zoophiles. And they say, I am not that. Like, mm-hmm. I, I want to make it clear. I do not believe myself to be hurting these animals, but there are people. And I, I think this is the one that like would really solidly fall under the disorder, right, area. Uh, then we've got opportunistic zoosexuals. There was a similar one of these for, for necrophiles as well. These are the people who have normal sexual encounters but would have sexual intercourse with animals if the opportunity arose. All right. So, so far we haven't had any where the, there's actual intercourse with animals. Like it's just sort of we're seeing the spectrum uh, intensify until we get there. That's the last three, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, this is where, with number eight, this is where we get to regular zoosexuals, those who prefer sex with animals to sex with humans, but are capable of having sex with both. Such uh, zoophiles will engage in a wide variety of sexual activity with animals and love animals on an emotional level. So I guess you could say like that, the example uh, that I listed earlier of the anonymous doctor who loved horses but also had a family, he right. would be a regular zoosexual. Then this is a, this is, Super dark. Uh, I'm I'm even uncomfortable reading this, but we've got to do it. Homicidal bestials. These are people who need to kill animals in order to have sex with them. So this is like a combination of zoophilia and necrophilia. Yeah. Uh, and although they are capable of having sex with living animals, they have an insatiable desire to have sex with dead animals. I. I don't know what to add to that. Yeah. It's just upsetting. And then number 10, again, uh, I need to remind everybody, like the spectrum here has to do with, with, with contact, like, um, from just like very marginally, uh, uh, zoophilic to just 100% zoophilic. So number 10 is exclusive zoosexuals, those who only have sex with animals to the exclusion of human sexual partners. And from, uh, from some of the data, especially that survey that was conducted by Malitsky, it seems like there are quite a few people like that fall into that category. Not by quite a few, I mean like when you interview the broad spectrum of zoophiles within that, right. there are a number of them. Okay. Now that we've gotten the really dark stuff out of the way, some studies have actually called zoophilia a risk factor for future harm to humans. You, you would you would think this, especially again, like based on uh, Mindhunter and serial killers, right? Like mm-hmm. one of the predictors is harming animals when you're younger, right? Um, but there's a paper that refutes that and advocates actually for better diagnostic criteria. This is again Ranger and Fedorov. They discard zoophilia as a potential risk factor for future violence against humans because of how disparate the various definitions are. So if we look back at, at agrawals, you know, out of the 10 uh, classifications, only one, two, two of them were outright sadistic and homicidal. And then you get into the consent issues with a couple of the other ones, right? 
So they say the other problem here is that these arguments don't use peer review evidence uh, and that the studies, because they're difficult to conduct, lack control groups and most of them are correlational. So they use Kinsey's report actually, that whole example of 40 to 50% of males from farm communities having sex with an animal at least once. They say this is an example of that, right? Like we – this isn't peer-reviewed. There isn't a control group. It's pretty correlational. There's no evidence to support that a large proportion of sex offenders come from farm communities. You know, um, New York Magazine ran an interview by um, Alexa Sulis Ray uh, a few years back with an unnamed zoophile uh, titled uh, What It's Like to Date a Horse. Um, I, I touched on a lot. It, it touches on a lot of what we're talking about here, uh, but I, I don't think it's necessarily content that we, we want to discuss on the show. But I'll make sure that we link to it on the landing page for this episode. It's stuff to blow your mind for anyone who wants to essentially read uh, a self-identifying zoophile's account. Yeah, again, like uh, we're trying to, in the format of this episode, stay away from specific yeah. examples of bestiality. But I will say that the article, though, it presents about as sympathetic example of, of sexual zoophilia as you can find. And, and yet I, I still have severe problems with it. And I think a lot of it comes down to what criminologist and uh, sociologist uh, Piers Bernay points out in a 1997 paper. He makes three points. One, human-animal sexual relations almost always involve coercion. That is a really good point, Yeah. The coercion versus persuasion. Right. right? Yeah. I mean, you know, coercion is, is kind of and that's part and partial to so much of our interactions with domesticated animals. Sure. Right? Yeah. Number two, he points out such practices can often cause animals pain or even death. Uh, and certainly more so in some of these classifications that we looked at um, on the list. And the other way around, too. Yes. We should note. And then number three, and this one I think is a real sticking point, uh, is animals are unable either to communicate consent to us in a form that we can readily understand or to speak about their abuse. Yeah, so that number three is a big one. We we simply exist in different mind states, drastically different in some cases. And I feel like in order to justify it, to justify the act, you have to essentially see the animal as having a human mind state or convince yourself that you're thinking and acting via the appropriate animal mind state. And the former is impossible. And the later, I mean, it really seems to be an impossible exercise as well. Yeah. I mean, you can talk about putting yourself in the mind state of a, of an animal, but I, I'm unconvinced you could, you can do so in a way that would, would satisfy, uh, this, this third charge, uh, uh, from Bernay. By the way, in uh, in registering our concerns about consent here, uh, we're exhibiting what is a trend in the cultural treatment of zoophilia. So past uh, condemnations tended to center around what it did to the status of the human being. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're lowering yourself to this act, uh, whereas we see an increasing uh, uh, amount of stress put on the animal itself. Uh, you know, we're concerned with the welfare of the animal, uh, the 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 suffer the animal, the suffering of the animal, the lack of consent for the animal. Uh, so I, th- I think it's interesting to look at that, like like how the the cultural attitude toward this has changed, or at least how the the cultural objection to it has changed. Yeah, that is a huge shift in consciousness and understanding of our relationship with animals. I think, wow, like. Maybe more than anything with zoophilia, just the historical trajectory that you're outlining there is something that's kind of interesting. Like what what is it about our present 
industrial state that's brought us to the point where we do care more about the animal now. Yeah. That's fascinating. So let's talk briefly before we wrap up here about the future of zoophilia. This is where, you know, we'll, we'll discuss some of the things that were out, sort of outside of the format for our discussion in this episode. So many zoophiles believe in the future their sexual preference will be seen as a preference and not as a deviancy. Some individuals declare that their sexual attraction to animals is an orientation, and those are the ones that call themselves zoosexuals instead of zoophiles. Some also want to distinguish themselves, as I mentioned earlier, from zoosadists. They want to make it clear that they don't see their behavior as uh, taking any pleasure in harming animals. What about ethics here? There's so many questions here. We're purposely in this episode staying away from the legalities, but it's worth remembering, as as Robert outlined, these animals can't give consent. Ranger and Federoff, in their paper, they argue that for the future research on zoophilia, studies can't always use forensic or prison inmates as sampling of men that are arrested for crimes other than bestiality. We can't make generalized conclusions based on this data. Uh, now I'm imagining like a, a spinoff of Mindhunter. That's like a whole nother group of people that are trying to figure out the particularities of studying this phenomena. Now, Jesse Baring had a really good write up on this topic, uh, in Scientific American in 2010. And he points out that there are a lot of unanswered questions about zoophilia, even if we are to accept the idea of it being an orientation and not a disorder. So I will propose these here for all of us to think about. Okay, first, what makes some domestic species, such as horses and dogs, more common erotic targets for zoophiles than others? Second, do zoophiles find particular members of their preferred species to be more attractive than other individuals from that species? And how? Are there beauty cues such as facial symmetry? Like, what's going on there? What percentage of homosexual zoophiles are there over heterosexual zoophiles? So, again, like, if you go back to the, the DSM, it has no classification based on uh, the the sex or gender of either the humans or the animals. Another question, how do zoophiles differentiate between a consenting animal partner and one who isn't? Now, that, again, obviously seems to be uh, a line of of legal boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. And then an important question, too. Why are men more likely to be zoophiles than women? We know that, at least from the research that's available to us. As flawed as it is, it seems like men are more likely to. So what's going on there? All right. So we have a number of questions that still remain open questions about just the nature of zoophilia uh, moving forward. And then, you know, we also run into some of the same complications we've we've uh, we discussed on our sex bots episode. Mm. When you consider, all right, well, we're getting increasingly into an age where robotic uh, simulacrums are possible. Uh, virtual environments uh, are, are more and more of an option. And you do see a fair amount of yeah. I mean, how many? How many examples are there out right out there right now of people taking the form of an animal or uh, an animal human hybrid in a virtual scenario? Oh, totally. Like yeah. uh, first example I think of. OK, Skyrim. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. They have cat people and lizard. people. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, if I've got the option to be like a cool cat person with claws and stuff, I'm going to choose that person. Why do I want to role play as a human being? I am a human being. <laughs> right. So, Yeah. Obviously, there's lots of avenues available. So as we as we move forward in the future, people with an inclination for the 
like a virtual or even perhaps robot assisted version of Zephilia, uh, how are we supposed to feel about that? Because in certainly in the case of uh, of uh, of pedophilia, you know, there's a lot of concern that well, if you if you allow people an unreal avenue to explore these feelings, then you are emboldening them towards uh, real life crimes. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, a real life physical uh, manifestation of their desires. Uh, so is it, a, is there a similar case with zoophilia? So I hope that uh, we have presented this to you in a respectful manner. Obviously, it was uncomfortable for us. I imagine the listening experience maybe was a little more uncomfortable for you than some of our usual episodes. It was it was more uncomfortable for us as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. Uh, but yeah, I hope that we were able to communicate this and that you know it served uh, the mission of our show and that we were we're bringing out uh, different ideas and discussion of these topics. So. If you're interested in more of this, let us know. Uh, like I said, we we talked a lot about our necrophilia episode here. Uh, you can find that on StuffToBlowYourMind.com. And also, uh, I had previously made a gallery outlining Agrawal's necrophilia categorization. I don't think I'm going to do that with zoophilia here. Yeah. Uh, but that you can find that on StuffToBlowYourMind.com as well. Yeah, and hey, if you want to reach out to us, you know, I, you know, most of the people who reach out to us, they reach out to us with the understanding that we may use what they say on a future listener mail, uh, et cetera. But if you have something you want to share with us, uh, or just your feelings about the topic and you don't want us to share it with people, uh, you know, feel free to do so and just mention that in the email. Though, of course, we are, we are not, uh, mental health professionals and we are not priests. Right. Uh, so just bear that in mind when you share content with us. And the ways that you can get in touch with us, we're all over social media we're on facebook we're on twitter we're on tumblr and we are on instagram but of course if you just want to write us privately as robert mentioned the way to do that is to type out an email to blow the mind at howstuffworks.com for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com Thank you.